Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Welcome back to the Restoration Living Podcast, and I am so excited to continue going through this book of Revelation study with you. We have gotten to what I feel like, what I like the most about this, with the good stuff, right? We opened up, we talked about the later foundation, we, you know, got the basics of apocalyptic literature down, we got through the seven letters to the church communities in uh, Asia and modern what is modern day Turkey and last time we really started digging into the actual vision of what John is told is going to happen soon and we have hit on that a few times but remember this is given to people in a specific point in time in a specific context and that's going to be one of the keys we're going to use to unlock the meaning of the book of Revelation's symbols and the symbology used to convey its message. So, and when we left off last time, we saw that John was taken up in the spirit to the throne room of God and God sitting on his throne with the lightning and the thunder and the the gemstones and all of these things are a throwback to the Old Testament. And I didn't really mention it last time, but I'm going to hit it pretty hard this time, and and you're probably going to get tired of hearing me say it. But you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you do not understand the references it is making. It is a, a text that is so dependent on the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what would have been the Bible to John's listeners, to John's readers, rather, of his letter as it was read to them. And so one of the things that's important to remember is that Jewish boys went to school and their education was centered around the Torah until they became an adult and started interning and working in a family business all day, every day for their childhood. They memorized the the Tanakh, you know, specifically the Torah, but what we call the Old Testament is to them... (laughs) their meat and potatoes. That's what they spent years of their life from age, you know, childhood, you know, six, seven, all the way up to if they were a normal aged family to about age eight to 13 to a normal income family, excuse me. So we are going to have to constantly keep making these references. We've been doing it throughout, but we're going to be doing it a lot more. And so just as last time we were able to go back to the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms and the book of Job to see how God is depicted as his voice being like the thunder and in the storm cloud, just like when he met with Moses, that his presence came as a storm cloud on the Mount of Mount Sinai, the mountain. 
and that's where Moses met with God. This is what we're seeing as we pick up in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 6b. And this is when we start getting to the good stuff, so buckle in. Let's get into it together. Verse 6b says, In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. Each of these living beings was like a lion. Excuse me, the first of these living beings was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a human face, the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day, and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Now listen, when we see these beings, they might be sound freaky to you and me, but to a person who lived in John's time, this would have been an easy connection to the book of Ezekiel. That when Ezekiel sees his vision of the beasts around God's throne, then he, we would have made this connection. And each of these things, remember in apocalyptic literature, the, the fantastic imagery, the symbolism is a heavenly symbolism of earthly realities, of things we can apply and see connected that God is putting this spider web together for his readers to understand. And what we see is these, these wild living beings are you know, part of God, the heavenly beings that are dedicated to the worship of God day after day night after night this is their job now they're covered in eyes what would that symbolize just what you think it does that they have eyes to see everywhere they are constantly paying attention to all of the things in the world now the faces that each of them have something you've got to understand this is a throwback to the Babylonian captivity each of these faces each of the living beings faces just like we saw in Ezekiel if you were to read Ezekiel's heavenly visions each of these represents a quadrant of the Babylonian zodiac that each of these living beings represent a god or goddess in the Babylonian pantheon. That doesn't mean that these are real gods from the Babylonian pantheon. It's a symbol of how even the pagan gods are not superior to God, to Yahweh. That Yahweh sits on the throne and the images of the pagan gods worship him. That's the, it shows a, people who live in a pagan society where the symbols of the gods were everywhere. You, we don't have that today in our culture unless you think of the idols of American culture, right? That maybe we have the, the logos of the brands that we have to show off to people, right? That show our opulence and our wealth. But in the pagan idolatry of Hellenism, of Persia, of Babylon, of, of, of all of these, of the Greeks, all of these Mesopotamian nations, these symbols represented the presence of the gods. The idols were not the gods. They were the holders or channelers of the gods' presence. And so this is a throwback to Ezekiel, where just as God showed Ezekiel, that he, Yahweh, is supreme over the gods of Babylon. This is a throwback to remind us that God is still on his throne. He is still in charge. And so when each of these 
are connected, that the symbolism is to show God's superiority. And so each of the tribe, 12 tribes of Israel would have been able to connect to this. There are symbols, right, that, that represent the tribes. And so one of the things that is important to see is that when we look at each of these animals, they connect to things that were available to the time of God, of, of, of John's readers. Each of these four things were still connected and they, they would have seen them around and said, okay, wow, what, what is, you know, the, the lion, right? What is the, you know, symbolize? What is the bull symbolize? All of these things would have connected to the idea that Jesus, God is on the throne. He's superior to these pagan gods. Okay. I hit that one pretty hard. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Uh, when we look at, excuse me, uh, the throwback to Hebrews chapter 10, I want you to understand why is it important that God is sitting on his throne? I, I got my notes shuffled up, so I apologize. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10 says this, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering forever, he made perfect those who are being made holy. And so when we see the throne room of God with these heavenly beings representing the pagan gods of old that are they are worshiping God, it's a reminder that Jesus has paid it all. He has defeated death. In the earlier vision, we saw Jesus as the high priest walking in the temple of heaven among the lampstand the way the earthly high priest would have. But he wasn't offering a sacrifice. He was becoming the sacrifice. So as we continue on, this is so amazing that the beasts here are a little different and that God is still on the throne though. So what are some of the differences? Well, unlike the beasts of the, uh, in, in Ezekiel's vision where each one had all four faces, eagle, ox, lion, and man, these had only one face each and their wings were different. And Isaiah and Ezekiel, they both have wings, but in Isaiah, they had six wings, and Ezekiel, they did not. Now, why does six matter? Well, six is not only is it a balance, right? You would have to have six wings to um, fly evenly. Six is also the number of completion in Jewish culture, that six was the, the number that of days that God took to create the heavens and the earth. He rested on day seven when seven is the number of fullness and totality, but six is the number of completion. And so as we look at this, this is a throwback to Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter six, verses one through four, this is what Isaiah sees. He says, it was the year of King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, 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 is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The, their voices shook the temple to its foundation and the entire building was filled with smoke. Do you see the connection? 
John is making a connection from what he sees to what they saw. Now, we don't know whether John is doing this on purpose to communicate in code or if John actually sees the same thing Isaiah saw and Ezekiel saw, just, you know, these visions of heaven. I have my theories. I believe that John is doing it on purpose. There's just too much of the throwback for it to be uh, you know, anything else in my mind. But even if it's not, we still see that this is a picture that, that is being shown to John that this is the same God. Jesus and Yahweh, they're the same God. They have the same authority over the pagan gods. They are still ruling and reigning. And so as we continue on, it's so important that each of these things matter, right? Each of these things connect, and you have to be able to look at what John is showing the reader. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, remember the divine council, fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Now, this is interesting. Not only are the heavenly beings falling down, the earthly beings are, the elders. And this is a beautiful portrait of what was supposed to happen in the very beginning of creation. In the beginning, Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created an earthly family and a heavenly family, and Eden was the connection point between the two. God sat on his throne in Eden. That's where the gods lived, where it was in gardens and on mountains. And the scripture tells us that Eden was a garden. And in other passages, like for example, in Ezekiel, it refers to it as the mountain of God. That's where the gods lived in Mesopotamian culture. So this was a connection to that. And so the divine council that used to be heavenly beings are now earthly beings. And this is showing us that God is putting all things right because earthly beings, the 24 elders, are now the divine council. And both heaven and earth, the human family and the spiritual family, the heavenly family, are both worshiping God the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. Now remember, this is, this is the, the symbolism, right? 12 times 2. Let's make the number 24. 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by two to say they have grown exponentially in power. And we're going to see this in even greater detail later. But the mystery that the Apostle Paul explains that God kept hidden was that God didn't want just the people of Israel to be in his family. He wanted all of humanity. He just had to make another nation that was not bound to this world. He had to make it new out of a, a, a human being, but a human being who could not have children on their own. It had to be done supernaturally. And so God is worthy of worship from his heavenly family and his earthly family. All right, man, this is so good. We finished chapter four. Chapter four is all about the worship of God in heaven. It's the break. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Revelation. There will be breaks in the action to take us back to the worship of God, to remind us that that is the thing we should be focused on. Are there things happening on earth? Yes, there are. 
But the most important thing is what's happening in the throne room of God where he's being worshipped. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. He is still there like he's always been. And this would have been a powerful reminder to the people of the church in John's time receiving this message, receiving this letter, to know that in the middle of their tribulation, in the middle of all of the persecution, in the middle of all the upset and unrest, God is still in control. Caesar may be on the earthly throne, but God is on his heavenly throne above everything. That's so good. All right, we've got time. Let's keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne that was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now, this is one verse, but it tells us a lot. What does it tell us? Well, first, it's a scroll in the right hand. The right hand is the hand of power, the hand of authority, and it's in the hand of God on his throne. What does he have under his authority? He has a scroll that is writing on the inside and the outside that is sealed. There's only one type of scroll that would have all three of those things in Jewish culture, that would have writing on the inside and the outside and be sealed. The reason for this is scrolls were written on papyrus at the time. The codex was, was becoming a thing, but it wasn't really there yet. It wasn't popular enough for everybody to be writing on an actual book that has pages that fold. Most people still wrote on papyrus. Papyrus was a mashing together of dried reeds, and when they were mashed and dried, they formed a simple paper that was smooth on one side and rough on the other. So people only wrote on one side, and they rolled the scroll up, so the rough side on the outside protected the important writing on the inside. But there was one type of scroll that was written on both sides and was sealed. And that was a property deed, a land deed. And so what would happen is when a person would make an agreement, they didn't have titles that would sit in government shops. What would happen is if I wanted to buy land from someone, we would strike an agreement and then there would be a copy of the deed that was made and the agreement that was made, it would be written out by a magistrate and witnesses would come and sign it on the inside. It would be rolled up and sealed with the seal of the magistrate and then the witnesses would sign it again on the outside so that if there ever became any squabble over the agreement, the witnesses could come out. But in the event that the witnesses could not come and, and the witnesses could not cause the, the, the agreement to be settled, the seals would have to be broken by a magistrate of equal authority to the seal that was on it. So a lesser authority, a person with lesser authority, could not undo that seal, could not break that wax seal, because there would be a penalty. Depending on the level of authority, if somebody tried to break it that did not have that authority, they could lose their job, they could be thrown in jail, they could even be executed. So this land deed would be sealed up, and the greater the authority, the more seals were put on it. And so this is what God is holding on his throne in his right hand is the land deed. Now it has seven seals. Remember what seven means in Jewish numerology of the symbols of numbers to a Jewish person. Seven means fullness or totality. That means that since it has seven seals, 
That means that it has the fullness of authority. It takes total authority to open these seals. That makes sense. That's why it's in God's hand, because God has the land deed in his hand. Now, what land deed does God have in his hand? Now, on all of Scripture, there's only one agreement that God makes with a land with a nation, and that is the promised land. God makes the promise to his people, starting with Abraham, and as part of the, the, the what we call the Sinai Covenant, as part of what eventually gets wrapped into the Mosaic Covenant, is the promised land. And it has been promised by God, and that's why God holds it in his hand. He holds that land deed. Now look at verse 2. Now, okay, we've got that down. We know what this scroll is. In verse 2 it says, And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Why would there need to be, the, the, why does the land need deed need to be opened? Because there's a disagreement on it now. God doesn't just want the land of, of Israel to be in the hands of the Israelites. We're going to see more about that in a minute, but we also have to recognize that at the moment this is being written, Israel no longer owns the land. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you see the Mosaic Covenant is conditional. And the Mosaic Covenant gives three things to the people of Israel. The first thing is the land, but it also gives them unity as a people, and it gives them the sacrificial system. It's conditional, though. If the people of Israel stop honoring God, God says he will take those things from them. And that's what happened. They stopped honoring God, and God took away the land. It was captured. Part of it was captured by the Assyrians, and then all of it was captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were defeated by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks turned into the Seleucids at the death of Alexander the Great, and the Seleucids were defeated by Rome. And so from the time of the exile to Babylon, Israel never got the, all of the promised land back. To this day, Israel still doesn't have all of the promised land. And what we see is they lost it. That's why God wants to open it, because they broke the covenant and a new agreement needs to be made. A new covenant needs to be made. Does that sound familiar? The new covenant? Ah, you're picking it up. That's why the strong angel shouts and says, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? It has to be someone with total absolute authority equal to God. It says this in verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Now we have a huge problem. God made the agreement, God sealed the scroll, but nobody has greater authority than God or equal authority to God. And so who can open the scroll? Nobody can. So what happens in verse 4? John says this, Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Why does John weep? Because John's identity, like any Jew, is connected to the land. In John's mind, this is a moment of total despair. If no one can open the land deed, then the land is lost. And so is their identity. There will no longer be a promised land for God's people. And so John is weeping. Nobody is able to open the scroll. That means it's all over. The covenant is dead. 
there's never going to be a way to reforge it, to create a new agreement, if no one can open the scroll. But look at verse 5. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John gets told there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? That's Jesus. He's the heir to David's throne. He won the victory. And so we see this beautiful picture of Jesus' equality to God the Father. There are a lot of people, and I know I've talked about this before, who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that the scriptures never claim that Jesus is the same as God. But here's a very clear example of one of many where Jesus has equal authority to God the Father. He's the one who can open the scroll. Why is he doing this? Because this is a, once again, we got to go back to the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, look at what it says. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to greatest will know me already says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. This is the prophecy that the prediction that is given to the prophet Jeremiah that Jesus fulfills. Look at this from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 8. It says when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. That means the land covenant has to go away too. There no longer needs to be a promised land. And Jesus once again said this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, at the, the, the night of the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22 says this, He, Jesus, took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. We know all about this already, but I wanted you to see the old covenant is being done away with. It is disappearing. It has become obsolete. Jesus is going to institute a new covenant with his blood, the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body on the cross. And then John is told, hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming. But what does John see? Now, this is important. Numerous times as we read this, John is going to be told something and then he'll see something different. He was told to look at the lion, 
But look at what he sees in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the twenty-four elders. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which represented the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. Now this is a symbolic connection. The lamb that was slaughtered is standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the twenty-four elders. What prophetic vision can you think of where someone stood in front of God's throne in the middle of the divine council while God was surrounded by heavenly beings? It's the book of Daniel. The Ancient of Days sat on his throne and one like the Son of Man came and approached on the clouds and he was given all power, authority, and dominion. This is a connection to that. John was told to look for the lion, but he saw the lamb because Jesus is both. He's the lion of Judah, the heir to the throne of David, but he's also the sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He has the authority. That's why he's standing in front of God the Father, the ancient of days, the ancient one, who was and is and is to come, right? In front of the, the, the heavenly beings, in the middle of the divine council, he's worthy. And now we see this connection to John hearing about the lion and seeing the lamb. And we've got time for just a couple of more verses before we close up. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. This is the picture of worship. They are worshiping Jesus the same way they worshiped God the Father. They are equal. You see, this is, this is where the, the biological son metaphor breaks down because even a son doesn't receive this, uh, the, the prince doesn't receive the same exact worship and honor as the king until he becomes the king. Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are all one. That's what we said that it said in the last verse that the sevenfold Spirit of God was in the Lamb. That's why the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, representing horns represent authority. Jesus had complete authority. Eyes represent vision. Jesus sees perfectly. So as we finish up our time together, what a beautiful picture. We're putting the symbols together. Jesus is going to open the land deed to the promised land so that a new covenant can be created. It's a symbol of the Mosaic covenant passing away and the new covenant being instituted. And we're going to see more about this as we go through. I hope this is making sense for you. I hope this is coming to life in a new way. And until next time when we keep going, man, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.